and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported Ellie Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the Gender and Sexuality Editor at LARB, and I'm joined in the studio today, finally, by my co-host, Medea Ocher, LARB's Managing Editor, and LARB Editor-at-Large, Kate Wolf. Hi, Eric. Hi, Eric. I have been derelict in my duties. I feel like I, I just feel like I haven't months. seen you guys physically in a long time. I know we've really missed each other, and it feels so good to be back. It does, and, yeah. But Kate has been here. She objects. Yeah, yeah, I that's was right. Here she last was, week. Yeah, Kate was there last whatever week, and I wasn't there. Is. Yeah, what? Yeah, whatever. What has everybody here been is. doing, Eric? What have you been doing? I stress eating, election <laughs> watching. Though I have been getting to the gym every single day of the week, which is like my own oh. self-care stress That's management. Nice. Well, when you, when you can't go outside. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Because to... I also have the fires right. in Malibu, oh. which like I feel bad complaining about air quality in Santa Monica, but it is... It's know, awful. It's, it's been terrible. terrible. And, and Kate, and, what have you been doing? Huh. Good, good question. <laughs> I don't know. Not sleeping very much, I'll tell you that. Oh. Just Why are you not night? sleeping? Time change, children crying in the middle of oh, the night. Yeah. Just like children in the neighborhood. Yeah. 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 Lots of children. And what about you, Medea? What have I been doing? I forget. <laughs> oh, I Well, there's at least oh. one major life update. <laughs> oh, yes. I got I got married. I did that. Woo-hoo. There was a wedding. Yeah. Thanks, Eric. I appreciate the little woohoo. Yeah. That's how I feel. <laughs> and uh, and then I went to the polls in Pennsylvania to campaign and helped out there. Oh, good for you. Oh, uh, yeah. Thanks. That was an achievement also of perseverance and patience, similar to the wedding. And um, <laughs> here I am now, finally back, ready to go. We're all So together. nice to be reunited. So nice to be reunited. What is the interview we're introducing for five hours? Okay. So today we have a conversation with philosopher Kwame Anthony Apia, whose new book, The Lies That Bind, tackles some misconceptions that he finds in our passionate clinging to identity and gestures at a broader and more mobile sense of identity that he hopes might help break up the quagmire we find ourselves in the present politically. And you talk to... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have loved Apia's work... It, it must be over a decade now because I first read his book on cosmopolitanism, which is kind of the ethics of living with strangers. Well, I think the subtitle is like the ethics of living in a world of strangers. And I've always bought hook, line, and sinker <laughs> everything that he says. You know, basically that he wants a world of difference and where difference is not a source of division, but actually rather a source of unity, which I deeply appreciate at this particular political moment. Same. He's a great columnist, too. I like the ethicist. Yeah, he writes for the New York Times ethicist column. Great advice. I love the ethicist. He's really smart. Yeah, he's super smart. I was really sad to miss this conversation. Same. Okay, let's get to it. Let's do it. I'm excited to introduce Kwame Anthony Apia. Kwame is a philosopher and cultural theorist whose work engages questions of political theory, ethics, history, and cultural exchange across a broad range of contexts and cultures. He is the author of numerous books, including The Politics of Culture, The Politics of Identity, The Ethics of Identity, and perhaps one of his most famous works in my first introduction to your writing, Cosmopolitanism, Ethics in a World of Strangers. 
His most recent book, The Lies That Bind, Rethinking Identity, engages many of the themes that have defined his career in philosophy and cultural criticism, urging us to confront some of the fantasies and incoherences that attend our identifications across creed, country, color, class, and culture. Welcome to the show, Kwame. It's very good to be here. Okay, let's start with what is perhaps a deceptively simple question. What is identity, <laughs> and why does it appeal to us? I think the why question is that any there are three things you need in order to have an identity, that's a social identity that's up and running. One is a label. You have to have a way of classifying people, and that means you have to have ideas about who's in and who's out. The second is that label has to mean something to the people who bear it. They have to think sometimes, because I'm lesbian, because I'm Republican, because I'm Armenian, I have reason to do something or other, like, for example, you know, act in solidarity with other Armenians, sure. not let down the side, you know, mm -hmm. all these things. And the third thing, and this is the thing that makes them fully social, is that other people respond to the label. They say, ah, a lesbian, and they do things or they don't do things. And I think if you've got all those three, some criteria something that means something to the bearers and that something that leads other people to respond to people in a certain way, then you've got an identity that's up and running. The ones that you mentioned from my list are the sort of big, famous ones. Mm -hmm. But notice that lots of other things fit that label too. Lawyer. Right, yeah, professional like class. Professional yeah. class. And I think also things that are like vocations more than professions, though many professions are vocations, like novelist, maybe artist. So there's a lot of them. And affinities, right? So we could have like yes. fandoms, fandoms or identities. Absolutely. Yeah. And in fact, fandoms, I think, are very interesting and understudied, at least philosophically <laughs> understudied kind of identity. But they fit the definition, so mm -hmm. they should be studied. As to why they matter, I think, well, first of all, they matter because, as I say, it's built into the definition that people do things because they have these identities. That's, as it were, part of what makes them identities. And that means that they're useful in making a life. And that's the central thing that we're all up to. We're all making a life. We're all trying to decide where to live, who to live with, what professions to follow, who to support in politics, what to be the fan of in music and sports and arts and so on. And in all of those ways, these identities, I think, can act as guides in very simple ways as well. My gender guides me to the right section of the clothing store. So there's nothing fancy about that. But still, every time I go into a clothing store, my gender is acting for me. And also not something which you point out in the book that certain identities will determine things that we can do in ways that are very conscious and forefront for us. And other identities, like the clothing store one, it's almost as if you just go there like an automaton, yes. right? It's like I gravitate towards this. Yes. When if we broke it down, there is nothing inherently natural about you gravitating towards one or the nope, other. Absolutely not. And in fact, far from its being natural, of course, uh, a lot of pressure went into making me into the kind of person who prefers to wear jackets and trousers and not dresses. <laughs> if I'd shown an inclination in the other direction, there would have been people in my family trying to enforce this taste. And that's, of course, one of the challenges that trans people face. But the other sort of big reason that they matter is that we can mobilize them to do things that are not intrinsically about the identity itself. Mm. Look at the difference between the expressed voting intentions of women and men in the midterm elections, right? Somebody has succeeded in mobilizing a lot of women, I think, in part through their gender, to see the Democratic Party as their party. Mm -hmm. And somebody has done a lot of work to get especially working class white men to see through their identity that the reasons for uh, supporting the Republican Party. Now, almost all of us 
have very complicated relations to politics, so and our identities don't simply determine these things. And we all have different identities. I'm relatively prosperous. And if I were thinking of myself simply as a relatively prosperous, well-paid person, that might be a reason to support the Republican Party, which seems to be very keen on making mm-hmm. life easy for prosperous, well-paid people. But I have other identities which explain why that hasn't worked. And I think everybody's like that. I think sometimes people sort of condescend to say working class voters by saying, oh, they're running against their interests. But whatever their interests are, why should they only be thinking about their interests? And could be a range of things. And they could care about a lot of different things. And I hope my own view is that the right way to think about politics is to vote for the candidate who you think will be best for the country. I don't terribly think it's a good way to think about it to think that your job is to find the person who will be best for me. Right. That would be a horrendous way to think about politics, I think. So the fact that people do things that aren't in their in the interests of their class or their race or their gender shouldn't be evidence of irrationality. Maybe they think something else is more important. Let's transition a little bit. Picking up on this idea, I'm interested in your rather nuanced writing about what is these days a very large topic, which is cultural appropriation. And one of the points that you make is that basically all cultures borrow from one another. And you have a number of historical examples to show that, in fact, what we might think is bounded to one particular geopolitical region, in fact, isn't. It's about a long history of oftentimes incoherent cultural exchange, sometimes forced cultural exchange. And then what we're really talking about, which you turn us to think, is that cultural appropriation is really about disrespect and exploitation. So one of the questions here then is, can you talk a bit about how we come to feel that we own a particular culture or identity or set of cultural practices associated with an identity? Because the more I kept reading that particular passage, I thought, well, it makes inherent sense to me, that feeling. I understand that. But it is also when you break it down, and this is what's great about philosophy, is that it's kind of incoherent as an idea that I could fix any type of like queer culture or something that I could say, oh, well, nobody else can do drag. That must just be a thing that, you know, gay men or lesbians do. Right. Right. It's a very interesting thing about our relationship, I think, especially to the arts, that we do have these kind of proprietary feelings. We think you go into the museum, you go into a great Dutch art museum, you're Dutch, you see a painting by Rembrandt, you think, ah, that's ours. Mm Mm-hmm. There's no harm in that, except that if that ours is a kind of proprietary ours, then it sounds as though you're saying, so if you're not Dutch, stay away. Right. Well, that would be terrible. Rembrandt, Rembrandt's worth looking at wherever you come from. And the same is true about music and all the other arts and literature. So we do have these, the way I think about it is we do relate to the arts through identity. That's fine, mm-hmm. that some things we think of as ours, some things we think of as interesting, because they aren't ours. I look at Chinese painting, I don't think of it as mine, except as a human being. And I'm part of the interest of it is that it isn't mine. It has nothing to do with Ghana, where I grew up. It's nothing to do with Britain, where my mother comes from. It's nothing to do with the United States, where I live, and so on. So I think you shouldn't stop people relating to cultural artifacts through identity. It's a perfectly natural and interesting thing to do. But I think what's wrong with the ours thing is not that. It's the sense of ownership, possession, because possession implies exclusion. It implies that, well, if it's ours, it's not yours. And that's most of the arts. The whole point of them is sharing them. It's not cutting people out. It's bringing people in. And also, I think that that model can conduce to a kind of cultural laziness, Mm -hmm. because if you're Dutch and you own Rembrandt, you don't have to think about Rembrandt, right? It's yours. You know about it. But actually... If you're going to look at a, I don't know why I picked Rembrandt, but if you're going to look at a, <laughs> seems like a weirdly high cultural example. But but if you are going to look at a Rembrandt, a little bit of attention to facts about Rembrandt that you don't know just because you're Dutch. Mm-hmm. I mean, for example, 
In Rembrandt's paintings, Rembrandt painted a lot of Jewish people. That's not surprising. European painters painted a lot of Jewish people because Jesus was Jewish. <laughs> and so all his family were Jewish and all the apostles were Jewish and so on. But Rembrandt was one of the first European painters to use models for his paintings who were themselves Jewish because the city he grew up in and worked in, Amsterdam, and in fact the region of Amsterdam he lived in, was a neighborhood that had large numbers of Sephardic and then increasingly Ashkenazi Jews. And Amsterdam was really one of the first cities in Europe to practice Jewish toleration in a relatively modern-looking way, and it started doing that at the time of Rembrandt. I'm just giving you an example of yeah. something that it's fascinating to know, I think, when you're looking at Rembrandt's paintings, but you don't know it just because you're Dutch. And I think people, you know, when sort of alt-right white nationalists claim Shakespeare... I'm happy that they think Shakespeare is wonderful. Shakespeare is wonderful. But to relate to Shakespeare, you actually have to do some work. You have to read the stuff. You don't own it just because it was produced by someone of your identity. Really owning it means reading it, and that involves using a dictionary and stuff like that. <laughs> and consuming Shakespeare in particular would give them a lot of interesting ideas that I don't think they would have associated with Shakespeare. They right. hear the headline of Shakespeare, which is right. world-famous white... Anglo writer, right? They don't think about the complications around race, gender, sexuality, no. everything that right. nationality even that happens in Shakespeare's work. So right. I think that's absolutely true. And Shakespeare's a perfect example of someone who, if Shakespeare himself had adopted that attitude, we wouldn't have him. Yes, be, that's a good point. Because the we think of him primarily now as a playwright, but he was also, and we also remember this, a great poet and the sonnets are the sonnet itself mm -hmm. is an italian form invented and developed by petrarch and if he'd said to himself i can't write sonnets they're they're italian that's not me that would have been the end of that <laughs> if he'd said i can only write about english people he couldn't have written a play about a prince of denmark or about julius caesar or about coriolanus or about time of athens he couldn't have written about he couldn't have written the tempest right so it's a very good thing that this idea that you can only write about you and yours didn't take hold because it would have impoverished world literature and music and painting, you know, incredibly. You know, we're in a very particular time in terms of where we are with identity. And I've, as I was reading your book, I was wondering if one aspect of our kind of passionate Passionate makes it sound like it's a positive, because I think more often than not, particularly when you get into like the white nationalist side, it's incredibly negative. Embrace of identity is really about what I see as like our a diptych in which we have on the one side our madness for belonging, which is both a biological, a psychological, but also as the world becomes increasingly more complex, we want to know that there's a place for us, so that that's on one side. And then on the other side is, and I've pulled this out of like science fiction reading mostly, the dark forest theory of like the universe, for example, that it's our deep distrust of others to love us and to care for us so that we're caught between these really rather ugly emotions, right? Or poles, I guess, mm -hmm. poles. So is that part of what's happening in that kind of the maddening embrace and the clenching around identity? It's so interesting because those forces that you just talked about in our psyche are not new. They're basically, you know, been there all along. So trying to figure out what it is in the present that has produced this particularly moment of a kind of toxic identity is, I think, very difficult. So yes, people want to belong. And even the sort of people who are accused of being, you know, rootless cosmopolitans have a sense of belonging in the world. Mm -hmm. They may not have a sense of belonging that's tied to one locality or another. Sure. And also they, you know, they tend to favor 
cosmopolitan cities. <laughs> right. <laughs> they may not care which one it is, but there's a kind of place that they like. So all of us, I think, have that sense. Some people, though, are more tied to a particular locality in their desires for belonging. They mm -hmm. really do want a place that's familiar, that doesn't change too much over time, populated by other people that they've known for a long time and so on and that kind of thing, and with a stable set of customs and habits. That means that for many people in the modern world with those desires, modernity is very difficult because mm. things are changing all the time. They aren't surrounded all the time by families and friends that they've known all their lives and so on. And indeed, if they are, that's maybe one of the things that's holding them back because the ability to move and the willingness to move is one of the things that allows you to take advantage of the economic opportunities of modernity. Mm -hmm. So I think that for those people, and especially if, as is the case in many places in the North Atlantic today, there's a combination of these challenges of change with a sense that the economic prospects are not improving and haven't really gotten much better for a very long time, for maybe a decade or two, and then got very bad after 2008 in many, many places. Mm -hmm. That sense of, it's not that they're unemployed necessarily, it's not that they don't have enough to eat, they're not under that kind of stress, but the sense that, that the world is not secure, that they know people who haven't got jobs, who in, the, in their imagination at least would have had jobs in the past and so on. And all these kinds of stress, I think, lead people to want to pull into the reassurance that, well, at least we've got this, we've got this, right. this identity. And that produces racism in Hungary and in Poland. It produces mm -hmm. racism, racism here. You don't even have to go that far. In the United yeah. States, <laughs> in Italy and so on. And I think trying to so one thing you can do, if that's what's going on and you want to be helpful, I think one thing you can do is try to respond to the, the legitimate sense of loss and challenge and try to deal with the economic problems that are, I think, one source of insecurity. You have to understand them properly. And that means you have to understand that the issue isn't just income. The issue is a meaningful place in the economy. The mm. issue is feeling that I'm making a contribution. If you were a classic American industrial worker, what you did was produce something that you were proud of and that you knew was recognized in the world as a valuable mm. thing, was a Ford motor car or something. Yeah. If you don't have that, if with the decline of the unions, you don't have the sociability that went with working class life, union halls and mm -hmm. union picnics mm -hmm. and all those things. Yeah. And yes, you have an income, but it's not going to go up very much. And you can't be sure that your children will have even the income that you do. I mean, all of those things are a bad situation. And those are things that a responsible state, a responsible society would want to put right, not because we were trying to stop people from voting for Donald Trump, but because they're fellow Americans who have a problem, which we'd like to yeah. help solve. That's the way I think about it. And I think in this respect, the failures have been across the board. There's been no serious attention to those problems from elites in the United States, Democrat or Republican, in Europe. None of the political parties is really seriously interested in thinking about the challenges posed by the combination of globalization and automation to the lives of many people. In those circumstances, why I... Why do you think that is? Why, why, have, why I, is it I, the failure I agree of leadership? with you that that's a problem, and I don't know... Well, I think part of it is, is back to our topic, part of it is a, the decline of the powerful 
class-based labor movement identities mm. that drove much of 20th century politics in a positive direction. If you think about the difference between being a member of the, I, I know more about the English case than others, so let me just talk about England sure. for a moment. If you think about the circumstances of the English working classes uh, in, in the 1930s, depression and so on, mm -hmm. and compare them with 1960, there's an astonishing achievement, right? I mean, in the middle, there's a world war. And yet, by 1960, they wouldn't have had indoor plumbing. They wouldn't have had toilets in mm -hmm. 1930. 1960, they got toilets, televisions, telephones, refrigerators, unions, <laughs> uh, jobs uh, that are relatively secure in an expanding economy. And, and this is... Of course, not just done by one party. The, both the major parties in Britain uh, were involved in reshaping the post-war economy. But the, still, they were responding to this sense that, uh, and one of the parties was called the Labour Party. It was, yeah. it was the party of, <laughs> of the working people. And the trades unions played a large role in shaping its policies. That was a success. That's a successful kind of identity politics. That was class politics that achieved something well worth achieving. Yeah. And many of us, I'm, I'm, um, I don't sound working class in England, and I'm, I'm not, and, uh, and I don't have, uh, none of my recent ancestors were working class. But most of my recent ancestors worked for the Labour Party mm. because you didn't have to be working class to see that this was a just movement of justice. It was a justice. good idea. It was a good yeah. idea. Yeah. So I'm not saying it was, it was, a, it was a, it took class seriously, but it didn't turn it into a politics that was only for the working class to participate in. It, mm. it assumed that if this was a good set of policies, anybody who could see the justice of them could join in. Okay. That, that was an analogous thing was successful in our civil rights movement. Again, it was driven at its heart by black people and obviously black people had a serious interest in the outcome. But it wasn't done just by black people and other people who were not black, but who white Catholics, white Catholics yeah, Jews and Jews. so on, yeah. took participated in it as a movement of justice. And, you know, um, it worked. Uh, I don't mean that we have racial justice, yeah. <laughs> but I do mean that we have much less racial injustice than we used to than have. Used to, and and sure. the state is, is much less of a problem than it used to be. The state isn't telling black people that they can't drink in the same uh, from the same bars and at the same water fountains as white people anymore. So. I think these are models of, yes, you've got to take identity seriously in the political context, mm. but you don't have to do it in an exclusionary way. And where a class of people has a case of justice that their interests need to be attended to, people who are not of that class can say, yes, in a democracy, yes, well, we see that. We see we're white, but we see that there's a black injustice. We're straight. We mm. see there's a gay injustice. We're uh, Gentile, but we see there's, there's anti-Semitism. Right. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at KPFK Studios in sunny Studio City. We've been speaking with Kwame Anthony Apia, author of The Lies That Bind, Rethinking Identity. We will return to that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation. We're excited to have Dan Lopez, author of The Show House, back in the studio with us today to give us this week's book recommendation. Dan Lopez, what are you recommending? Hi, Eric. Today, it's a somber recommendation. Mm -hmm. uh, some of you may have known that the poet Tony Hoagland recently passed away of cancer. But as a writer, we still have the words that mm -hmm. we can turn to. It made me go back and read one of his collections that came out a few years ago called Application for Release from the Dream. 
just a great collection, like all of Hoagland's work. It looks at sort of the everyday and finds really deep learnings from that. And I thought, what better way to honor him and to tell people about his work if you haven't seen it before than to read a little brief bit that kind of gives you a sense of what he's like. Um, This comes from a poem called Wasp. It's from the middle of the poem, and it goes, The world is a can of contents under pressure. A human being should have a warning label on the side that says, Beware, disorganized narrative inside, prone to frequent sideways bursting of one feeling through another. Mm, That's very beautiful. And I thought, yeah, I thought that just kind of captures it. Like, here's this amazing metaphor that it's inside all of us. We just have these feelings inside. And sometimes the best way to get them is through poetry. Is that a lot of what he writes about? This kind of inchoate feelings or like slippages between the outside and the inside? Writers in general, but poets in particular, and him especially, loves the question rather than the answer. He... Mm. He likes to not stake a claim. He likes to just bring up an opportunity and be like, well, what does this tell us about life? What does this tell us about what it means to be American? What does this tell us about what it means to be a human being alive right now? How do we explore those feelings? And I love it because the poems are slippery in that way. You you think you mm-hmm. have a like a bead on what's going on or what like you can use this to, you know, oh, I'm going to text this to so-and-so and like, look, this is art saying, arguing for my side of something. <laughs> um, but the beauty of his words is anyone can kind of see him that way. And they speak to essential truths, like existential things that are within all of us, regardless of our, our politics, our identities, anything like that. He's a really great writer. I was sad to hear that he passed away, but I was glad to have an opportunity to look back over his work. Sure. And can you give us the title of the collection that you were referencing and the author's name? Absolutely. It's Application for Release from the Dream by Tony Hoagland. Thank you so much. We've been speaking with Dan Lopez, author of The Show House. Thanks for joining us. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Kwame Anthony Apia, author of The Lies That Bind, Rethinking Identity. You know, there's a book that I keep thinking of. I don't know if you ever read the the writer Sam Delaney. Yes. Um, okay. He once so, dedicated a book to me, <laughs> me and my husband. <laughs> it does make sense that he would he would enjoy your work. So he has this novel, Stars in My Pocket Like Grains of Sand, yes, right? Um, and for listeners who have not um, read this novel, it effectively kind of asks a question about the limit of difference that in this case, I guess, primarily human psychology can handle. And the concept that he comes up with is cultural fugue, what he calls a state when socioeconomic pressures resulting from diversity or difference reach a peak of conflict and it ends up with planetary destruction. So I keep, especially over the past year, I keep thinking about that novel. And is it like, is that what is for certain parts of the population? And I find it hard to map that out because I love difference and it's it's something that maybe rightly or wrongly I've associated with being a queer person that it's like looking out in the world for other things not necessarily like you were saying cosmopolitan kind of not rooted in one place but feeling like a citizen of the world sometimes in a negative way because it's like well no place would have me so then I will make myself mobile right mm-hmm. but for others there does seem to be a real fear partly related to the presumed loss of cultural authority or position, economic position also and authority. But is that actually 
an issue? Like, is there a limit to which like human psychology can only handle so much difference before it starts either grouping in the ways that identity works, or it just has a, a violent conniption reaction? I, I think it can't be that there's some sort of set limit because the amount of difference that people in the great cosmopolitan cities of the world now deal with is enormous. And mm. they deal with, and they, they're there because they want to be in a place like that. Uh, most of them, some of them have to be there for one reason or another right. for work or something. But, but a lot of people love being in LA, uh, or New York, uh, or New York, Chicago, Chicago yeah. but also uh, Mumbai or yeah. Sao Paulo or sure. Shanghai, Hong Kong. And I think that also, the people who seem to be having the most difficulty are actually not terribly exposed to the most extreme varieties of difference. Exactly. If you live, if you live in a small town in, in Tennessee, uh, you don't see the, the, the range of human difference that I see every day walking from my home well, to Well, you my see office. it in TV, which is oh, yes. not the same as experiencing it as a real right. person. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So you know it's there. But it's it's not obviously doing anything in your mm -hmm. town, even if you have, say, a significant number of Latin American migrant workers. They're not changing your town. They're not busy. They're not closing down bars or or reshaping the high street. They're not right. knocking down Confederate statues. They're busy working and being quiet and worried about probably being persecuted by the, by um, the immigration people. So I think that whatever it is that's producing these negative reactions to difference, it isn't exactly being rubbed up against it because the people who are most rubbed up against it haven't responded in that way. Uh, mm -hmm. The Brexit vote in Britain, which was a vote to leave basically out of a kind of sense of hostility to Europe, right. and to Europeans, uh, in in London, which is the place where the most of the Europe most of the Europeans were most frequent, was and the banking center and the banking center Europe. of yeah. Europe, which which is important for uh, the British economy. Um, they voted overwhelmingly to stay. And the people who voted to leave were people in places where there weren't many of those sorts of people, mm -hmm. uh, or there were fewer. Uh, so it can't be about that. I think it's about it's more about the loss of cultural authority. I think I think it's more about the sense that we used to be the people who defined this society. We, the salt of the earth, the the working people of the north of England. We were what it mm. was to be English or British. Well, English probably more than British. Um, we uh, solid white uh, middle and working class Tennesseans were what people thought of when they thought of Americans. And, mm. and we, it was our country. It stood, we stood for it. It stood for us. Now we have a black president. So our whiteness isn't, isn't necessarily right. doing such a good job for us. Uh, also, the dominant elite culture is speaks about us and thinks of us as if our values are un-American. They think of us as racist and sexist and homophobic, and they think of America, the best America, as, as not racist and not sexist and not homophobic. They look down on us. All of these attitudes, which have to do with a sense not of being, as it were, forced to face up to difference, but with having to live with difference in the definition of the country, mm. accepting that mm. this is what you know, I have always thought of the United States as a multicultural nation, as a nation whose challenge and interest is that people have come from everywhere and, and haven't right. been forced to leave everything behind, that they brought all these different things with them. I think for many Americans, that doesn't feel that that isn't what they think their country is supposed to be. 
And I think over the, uh, you mentioned the media, I think recent the way in which the country is represented in the media uh, has led them to see that they're no longer living in the country of their imagination and they don't like it. And that's understandable. It's understandable if you've got a way of thinking about what it is to be American in which you're at the center and you see yourself being displaced. That's I imagine I haven't had that experience, but I imagine it's not so great. Well, because what's happening there is the identity is being pulled apart, yeah. right? Identity as a fantasy, in a sense, right? That I thought America was this. That was my identity. Mm -hmm. When I said American, mm -hmm. that's what I understand. And then now I'm being shown a series of contesting images and realities, right? right. right? And I think identities are always fantasies. They're always of course. Imagine, yeah. uh, made in the imagination. They have to be because what they do is to bring strangers into a group. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we remain strangers. Yeah. Uh, you and I don't know most gay Americans. That doesn't stop us being gay. The typical American doesn't know lots of you know, more than a few hundred, a few thousand Americans. And yet mm -hmm. there are 330 million of us to know. Right. So if we're to be brought together, we can only be brought together in the imagination. Where else can you bring people together? And, um, and that's why I think literature and the arts are so central to these things. It's because that's where the work of the imagination uh, helps to bring us together. Samuel Delaney's novels are in part about, uh, I think, as much great modern science fiction is, about reminding us that there's a thing that brings us together as humans mm -hmm. in the in, in the in the wide world of the cosmos yeah. but that but that's done in the imagination because i don't know there's the seven and a half billion humans and i'm never going to know more than the teeniest fraction of them agreed and then i'm wondering as to kind of wind this up a little bit what would you say to critics who might claim that some of your ideas about cosmopolitanism, for example, or this kind of restoring the human identity as a common pool of identity are, you know, all well and good, but kind of in ways that we've been talking about, applicable mostly to the experience of metropolitan, cosmopolitan elites, right? Um, those who, like us, live in major, not only just major urban centers nationally, but internationally, right? I mean, so how, because those people, you have very little need to convince, right? But, you know, do you get what I'm saying? Yes, like, yes, no, I, can, the, I mean, so... Th there's this. It's this. What I think of as the platinum frequent flyer card objection. That of course you who who can f fly happily over the world so easily uh, move through move this easily new through world, the world. Yeah. Who have the kind of passport that means that I've never been a refugee. I've never been mm -hmm. denied entry anywhere. I can get a visa even to the places that visas are required because I have the right kind of passport and the right kind of history and the right kind of access to resources. So yes, a. Everything in the world is easier for us prosperous people. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's one of the great um, failures of imagination of many people in the North Atlantic world is that they so take for granted that their prosperous situation that they don't Im engage imaginatively with the situations of people who don't have all these freedoms that mm. come from money and, and the right passport. Um, so we should do more of that. I mean, those of us who are on that, in that position. Um, but uh, second, however, I do think that there are a lot of very cosmopolitan people who don't have a lot of resources. I know people in, in Ghana, for example, they, they don't have the right kind of passport, so they can't travel easily, but they'd love to. Mm -hmm. And they follow, they read books 
set all over the world. Sure. And they don't just read about local things. Um, they know who the Prime Minister of Great Britain is and who the President of the United States is and who, who's running China. Uh, they're curious about all those things. So I think that while everything's made easier by being prosperous, it's actually important to recognize that this impulse is actually present in at every socioeconomic level. And there, there are people in refugee camps who have these attitudes, even though they have almost no resources. That's very important. But it is easier mm. if you're prosperous. And one of the challenges of our world is to make a world in which it's easier for more people. And the way we do that yeah. is by solving the great economic inequalities uh, that still pervade our world. We have done a relatively good job of reducing poverty over the global poverty mm. over the last uh, few decades. Paradoxically, we've done that at the same time as increasing inequalities and the economists will have to explain how that's possible to, to both to raise many people out of <laughs> poverty and to increase inequality. But it's, it, if, you, if, you ra if you make a very much bigger cake, you can actually make things better off for the w worst off right. and still give most of the rewards <laughs> to the best off. And the fact right. is that in all the, all the economies of the world today, the, 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 the largest proportion of the increased social product is going to the top 1% and, mm -hmm. and within the top 1% to the top 1% of the 1%. Right. That means there's all those resources that we could be using to make life better, more prosperous for more people. And then more people would, would have the freedom that you are rightly, your question rightly points out is denied to some people because they don't have the, the, mm. the passports and the money and the, and the education and the connections sure. that make it possible to celebrate human variety. Right. Or make it easy to celebrate human variety. And then, uh, okay, so my last question is actually wondering how has your thinking changed? But one of the first um, works of yours, uh, book length, not articles, um, that I had read was on cosmopolitanism. Mm -hmm. And I loved, I mean, of course, it was like, of course I would, because as soon as I read it, it was like, yes, this is exactly the program that I embrace. How is your thinking about identity, cosmopolitan identity, the, the ruse of identity in some way? How has that changed since? Because that's, uh, cosmopolitanism is 2006, so it's a little over a decade. Yes. And it was, I, I think for me, I'm thinking of this, it's like pre-Obama, right? Yes. This is me being very provincial in my own like local context, <laughs> but it's pre-Obama. And then now this is coming out in the first two years of Trump, right? Yeah. So how has your thinking about identity and cosmopolitanism changed over that decade? I think I've come to see that the program of cosmopolitanism has more enemies than I realized, mm. but that I continue to be encouraged by the fact that as I travel around, mostly talking to young people because I'm a professor and I talk on campuses, uh, that, it, that there is this vast army of cosmopolitans in the world, uh, in many, many countries, people who want to connect with the world, who see that we can only solve the world's problems together, mm. who are intellectually curious and imaginatively curious, who want to about other people as well as about their own traditions, and they want to read novels from elsewhere, as it were, and listen to music from all around the world, and, and movies, look at movies that are not just from their own place. So I think um, I'm... It's hard to be super optimistic at the moment because the forces of anti, the anti-cosmopolitan forces and the forces of toxic identity are so visible. Mm. Uh, and all I can do in the moments of sadness and depression is remind myself that nevertheless there are no, that's not everybody. Then there's, mm -hmm. And there's a huge battalions, millions and millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people on the other side. 
and that identity can do so much good that mm. that if we can bring ourselves together for example as americans we can solve the healthcare problem it's only because we are not thinking of the problems of people with pre-existing conditions as as our problems that it isn't obvious that we have to solve them um, so then to think of the other as also ourselves yes right sometimes i mean especially yeah, in, the, in the in the context you know the other everybody who is other to you in some dimension is self to you in some other dimension mm-hmm. sure and in politics uh, while it's easy to organize people against others the main positive function of identity is to organize people together with people not not against but with mm. and when we do that we you know we we create we create wars on poverty we send people to the moon we build uh, the, the our social security system uh, and so on and when we don't do that we have moments like this so i think and this is true at every level i mean it's that's the level of the united states but in california it's important for Californians yeah. to think of each other as Californians uh, in moments when there are b- divisions about, um, for example, uh, undocumented people. They're part of our community. They're here. They're living mm-hmm. among us. They're doing yeah. things. Whatever you think about the legal situation and how it should re- be resolved, they're your fellow humans and they're your, they're your fellow Californians. And we have an ethical responsibility to yeah, the neighbor. Yes. Right? That yes. kind of the yeah. openness. Yeah. Yes. And, and again... This is one of these places where the imagination helps. If you can, if you can walk a while in somebody else's moccasins, mm. uh, you can you can see immediately that certain things you might be tempted to do are wrong. Thank you so much for speaking with us. We've been speaking with Kwame Anthony Apia, author most recently of *The Lies That Bind: Rethinking Identity*. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Very nice talking to you. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. 